We're back in 1 John this morning, so if you'll turn there with me in the scriptures, 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at this morning verses 3 to 6, verses 3 to 6. Let me read this passage for us. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. If you'll recall, I've said several times as we have begun this first letter of John that John is a great teacher. And what he does is he reiterates over and over in different ways central truths in this book. We've already seen several of the things that he is is, uh, in a cyclical manner addressing. And two of the main things are knowledge and obedience. You go back and you read through chapter one, you'll see knowledge and obedience, knowledge of the light, therefore do not walk in darkness. You have all of these great uh, ways in which John teaches the knowledge of the gospel and obedience to the gospel. Well, our purpose this morning or our passage this morning is, is really no different. But one of the things that John highlights here in particular is that when it comes to the gospel, knowledge leads to obedience. Let me say that again. Knowledge leads to obedience. He he says that here, that if we know, then we will do. So I want us to consider that this morning. And from from a Christian perspective in particular, what is it that the Christian knows And what is it that the Christian does in terms of that knowledge? So two things this morning, our knowledge and secondly, our obedience. So let's think about our knowledge first. In verse three, we see John write this. And by this, we have come to know that we know him. And then he goes on to speak about obedience. But the language here is intentional. To know is one of John's favorite words in this letter. In fact, in his gospel as well. We have written these things at the end of the gospel of John so that you may know that Jesus Christ is Lord and so that you might have life in him. John is a great teacher. He's got certain themes and here he comes again to say, this is what I want you to know. So to know something in scripture is not simply an acquaintance with something or a knowledge of it in preset form or in a decree form like a proposition in terms of of the things we think like in science, that gravity uh, is seen in the world around us and such things as that, propositional statements. 
Now, knowledge does have propositional statements. There is truth. There is fact. And we understand these things. But to know in terms of scriptural expression of knowledge is not simply a knowledge of fact or a knowledge of truth or a knowledge of content. To know something means to have an intimate understanding, an intimate understanding, an awareness of something that isn't simply an object. It involves the whole being. In early in the scriptures in Genesis, it says that Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. This expression between husband and wife to know isn't simply object, objective knowledge or content. It's the idea of an intimate association with one, or that, one another that involves the whole person. Body, soul, mind, in the union that is the covenant of marriage, that's what's involved. That's a knowledge that supersedes or goes beyond information. You wives, do you know your husbands? And I I mean in the sense of you know what they're like, right? You know their tendencies. You know how they think. That goes beyond information, doesn't it? That's a practical life experience. Husbands, I would say the same thing about y'all with your wives, but I don't think any of us want to get in trouble this morning. So we're going to move on. But the idea of to know something in scripture is something, as I said, it goes deep. It goes deep to the very core and very soul of a person's being. So John is using that concept here with knowing God. Shouldn't surprise us. Christ is the bridegroom. Right? And the church is the bride. There's an intimate knowledge that involves all that we are that Christ knows and knows it intimately. So John uses this reference of knowing God. So if we are to know God, it means that God has to make himself known. We don't simply uh, grow up thinking, okay. There is a God, I can understand him in a variety of ways. We eventually do what? We create our own God when we do that. The only way we may know the one true and living God is if he makes himself known to us. And he has made himself known to us through his word and through the sacraments, through prayer. All of these things are involved in God's gracious expression of who he is. We begin with the word and then in the sacraments we have the word displayed before us in the gospel. And in prayer we engage with the God who has saved us through the gospel. This is personal knowledge. This is not something that you can fabricate. It's not something that you can sit down and study to the degree that you have this type of intimate knowledge of God. We need to remember this is not a superficial acquaintance. You know, like in the South, everybody knows everybody. But you don't really know everybody, do you? You don't know what goes on in their minds and in their hearts, or what goes on behind closed doors when nobody is around. 
You may have a, a persona outside the home, but in the home, it's a lot different. This is not a super uh, superficial acquaintance with Christ. It is an intimate interest in the Savior. And by interest, I mean your life is invested in him. Lloyd-Jones says, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, Christians are a people who know what they know. Don't you love it when preachers say things like that? who know what they know. You can make that argument about everybody. That's not what he's saying here. Christians are those who know that they know Christ because God has made himself known to them. We don't know everything as Christians and we certainly should never pontificate as though we know everything. But there are certain types of knowledge that Christians possess. And that's a knowledge of the gospel, not simply in the mind, but that mind has sent it down to the very heart. And that's what's involved. A heart knowledge and commitment to somebody looks far different than just a general understanding of them. Think about in your home, a heart knowledge of your family that surpasses the superficial knowledge of those around you. So it is with the believer. The gospel is what they know. They know that Christ has come into this world as God and man and has lived his life in such a way that can stand in the place of all sinners who come to him. And that he lived and obeyed his father and that he was crucified on behalf of sin. And that God raised him from the dead on the third day. That all human beings, all mankind would know that God is coming to judge the world. And that judge will be his son. And they know that this son who said, come to me. And I will in no wise cast you away. They know that this son is theirs and they are his. And that surpasses the, the lying uh, doubts of the mind, the lying doubts of Satan throwing at us, the lies of this world, the lies of the kingdom of darkness all around us. When all is said and done, no matter how much we, how much we struggle with all those things, in the end, a believer's heart can say, I need him. I need him. And I'm going to cling to him, knowing that only if he clings to me will I make it. And that is a heart interest in Jesus. The gospel of salvation leads us to seek a greater depth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me uh, point to our confession our confession points to the fact that it is our duty to grow in our knowledge of God. It's our duty. Not so much in the idea of putting a yoke, but a duty in the sense of as a child of God, he, he commands you to know him more. Because he wants you to know how wonderful he is. Our confession says it is the duty of everyone to give all diligence 
and make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged, that thereby the believer's heart may be enlarged and enlarged in peace and in joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness of God, and in strength and cheerfulness, in the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of assurance. He's saying the knowledge of Jesus Christ is what leads us to pursue more. We must. If we don't, there's a question mark. Isn't there? Are we giving lip service or heart rendering obedience? These are the challenging questions that each one of us have to face. And when I say each one of us, I mean you. I mean you. Where you are, where you sit today, you have to understand this, figure this out because today is the day of salvation and Christ is speaking to you through his word at this moment. He would not have us as Christians to be uncertain. He doesn't delight in those who walk around saying, oh, woe is me. I just can't know. I can't ever know because my sin is so great. Well, if your sin is that great, then how much more do you need to throw yourself on the Savior? And to deny that he is able uh, to take care of your great sin is a denial that you are looking to him as the Savior of sinners. All of these things that we can put in front of us as stumbling blocks or simply excuses. All of these things are simply taken away from the fact that God tells us to receive his son like a child accepts the words of his father. A simple childlike acceptance that then seeks to know this gracious God more. God, Christ would not have us be uncertain. He would not have us be uncertain of him. He wants us to understand him as he is. And he says to no one who comes to him, you need to do a little bit better. Or you need to prove that you're a Christian for me to be happy or settled with you or for you to be happy and settled with who you are. It's all about him. It all starts with him. And what we have to have is a certainty of who he is. And if we don't have that by faith, then you will never have certainty. You will never have assurance until you are certain that he is the son of God and that he can save you. He would have us be certain of him and then certain of ourselves in him, that he is our only hope, that he is the merciful savior and that all of his promises are true. And that in a sense, if there any, any part of us that might hold back with faith, we have to realize that if God has said it and it's impossible for him to lie, then we're either going to accept him as the God who can't lie or we're going to doubt him. 
just like the serpent brought doubt to Eve. Brethren, we need greater assurance. I simply don't preach this to you. I need greater assurance. We all need a greater conviction of truth, of what is good and what is not. We all need greater faith. That doesn't come by us mustering up within us a better faith. That faith grows when you grow in your love for Christ and your knowledge of him. That's how faith grows. Sincere, humble knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord is what helps you to face life. It's what helps you to witness to others. It's what helps the church to continue to abide with one another in the midst of all the mess that exists within the church. It's the knowledge of Christ that keeps us together. And that's the only thing that will. So we thought about our knowledge. Let's then move on to consider our obedience. If we've come to truly know God, then we will obey him. And obedience is the, obedience is the confirmation of the knowledge. Keep that, keep that in your mind there. Uh, obedience is the confirmation of your knowledge of Christ. What do I mean by that? It means this, that saving knowledge and the saving position of a person begins through the knowledge of Jesus and leads to obedience to Jesus. There is no, there is no compartmentalization between the two. Now, if we're talking about theology and theological studies, we go down a different road. But in terms of life, knowledge of Christ naturally flows out into obedience. There is no distinction. If you believe, you follow. That's what he said. He just said, follow me. So that's something we need to keep in clear view. So when he says in verse three, by this, we know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments, he's showing us once again that obedience to God's commands is the test of whether or not we know him. Is the test. Now, what do I mean by test? I don't mean you have to pass, pass a test. That's awful, right? Don't you hate taking tests? I do. I hated them growing up. And I hate it in the, in the American system because they just teach you to pass a test. They don't educate you. This is not about passing a test. This about, is about the fruit that comes from the vine. So if there is fruit on the vine, then it is the reality of fruit or renewal in the heart. Knowledge in the heart leads to fruit of the gospel. So that's the type of obedience we're talking about here. This is not a mystical thing. There are certainly mysteries involved in God's purposes, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about obedience. It's not a mystical thing. It's simply 
loving Jesus and doing what he says. This involves his moral law. The things that he says uh, are sinful that you must never do, have other gods before him, commit adultery, uh, uh, all those other Ten Commandments we read earlier and I can't think of right now. Thank you, Jim, for doing that. Yep. Covening, you know what I mean. All right. That moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, that's what he's talking about. And we have to understand what these commandments are. They are love for God and love for man. Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it. He doesn't, he doesn't stop, does he? He goes from one right into the other, that you will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws, the whole law is built. When you go to the Ten Commandments, the first four, what do you see? Love for God. This is how you love God. What do you see? Love for man? Five through six. It's about loving God and loving your fellow human being to the degree that you seek to never wrong them. Not because you're trying to look good, but because you're trying to honor the love that God has for you and the love that he has for your fellow brethren, your fellow human beings, brethren. In this, we're told that love the love of God is made complete. We see that in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. So whoever keeps his word. This is in parallel with the commandments, which is such a wonderful thing for us to think about. When scripture says law, it's not always talking about particular commands. It's referring to the whole counsel of God. Sometimes it refers to the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes just simply to the, all of the Mosaic administration. Sometimes simply to the decrees and precepts of God. The point is, is that you see him say not only the commandments, but he uses the word of God. Obedience to the word of God. Whoever keeps his word, whoever seeks to live holistically according to the whole counsel of God, they have the love of God truly perfected in them. Now, what we see here in verse 5 is basically what John and the rest of the scriptures talk about union with Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? It means this. If we are in God and united to God through Christ, then this is what life will look like. Verses 4 through five. If we say, I know him, jump down, verse five, then the love of God is truly in him. How is that? Because Christ is in him. If God is love and the love of God is truly in a person, therefore God is there. And how does God get into a person 
union with the Son. If we are united to God through the Son, then we're going to look like our Father in heaven. That's simply what I'm getting at. Any of you ever seen my children? You wouldn't, you would not mistake them if you saw them. You would know whose children they are. If we are children of God our Father, people are going to see it and know it. And how will they know it? By loving God and loving our fellow man, which is seen in obedience to the word of God. Being in union with Christ entails being consistent with him. Look back at 1 John 5 through 7. He says, remember God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Do you see the same thing he's been saying? He says it again. If you claim to have fellowship with the light, then the light will be seen as you live. Now, John does not leave us with an example. Without an example, what this looks like. He says in verse 6, whoever abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's how we measure our lives. Is Christ's likeness being seen? Not that you are going to look exactly like Christ. That will never happen in this life. But are you seeing your mind and heart beginning to change with how you think about life, with how you think about the way you speak to your spouse, or the way you treat your children? Or children, how you respond to your mother and your father? Does it affect the way that you address those who are your enemies? Or those who are hostile? Does it affect the way you forgive just as you have been forgiven? All these things are seen in our Savior's life. And he calls us to go and do likewise. Acts 10, verse 38, we're told how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great expression of what he did? He went around doing good. And that's the question. If our father does good and he has shown us that good in Christ and we see what Christ did that was good then we are to go and do likewise. There's an, important, there's an important word here. For the Christian, the walk of obedience is not an option. In the ESV, you see the word ought, O-U-T, O-U-H-G-H-T. I can't ever spell anyway. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. That word ought is the verb that means is obligated. So not ought in the sense of should, but ought in the sense of must. 
There is no option. We must walk in the ways that Christ walked, knowing his righteousness covers us completely, and yet going forward, knowing that when sin comes, when we mistake, when we mistreat someone, when we sin against God, there is mercy and there is grace to keep going and to grow in that knowledge of the love of God in Jesus Christ. One of the things I've been been, uh, saying to my students lately is just how much Christianity is a learning process more than it is anything else. You have to learn godliness because we're not naturally godly. It's a lifelong process. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, he will. He will make us progress one way or another. We're debtors. We're obligated. We're debtors to mercy alone. We're debtors to Christ. And the more we realize this, the more we will love him and we will care about others. And the more we love him and care about others, the more we will will see very clearly that we aren't what we used to be. That the act of the spirit within us has changed us. And he has not let us go. And he will never let us go been speaking to Christians this morning, but let me also throw out there something as well with regard to wherever we are. There's another side to Job or John's argument here. Verse four, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now you may be thinking, well, where did I hear that before at the end of chapter one? Remember, he's a good teacher. He brings it up in a different way, in a different context. And so what does this mean? This means that those who claim to be a Christian yet don't live as those who know Christ are lying. And they will show their true colors. Leopard cannot change his spots. Eventually, it will show itself. And so the question for all of us here, particularly those who do not claim to be Christ, claim to be Christians, is that no matter what you do or what we do, if we do not have the knowledge, saving knowledge of Christ, then no matter what we say, we're lying. Doesn't matter if we proclaim to be a Christian doesn't matter if we proclaim to be an American. doesn't matter if we claim to be a capitalist. It, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you claim to be a communist. It, it doesn't matter. It does not matter what you claim to be. You can claim to be a Christian. It doesn't matter. The question is, do you walk in the manner that he walks? Because if you don't, the truth is not with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for mercy. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the diligent patience of your apostles who have taught us and keep teaching us through their word. 
And Father, we ask very clearly and very pointedly that as we come to the Lord's table, that there we would see the knowledge of the gospel, gospel proclaimed to us, to our eyes, that the body and blood of Christ that was shed, was shed and broken on the tree for us, has been raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ lives, and because he lives, so we live. In his name we pray. Amen.
Again, Jesus said, this bread is broken for us. He offered it to all who trust in him. This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, Jesus took the cup, instructing his disciples by saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink, all of you, of it. Let us pray. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we are seeking to taste and see that you are good with our hearts, with the eyes of faith, looking beyond this bread and this cup to what they are designed to represent, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, In the cross of Christ, we glory. We do not glory in ourselves. We glory in your grace, your marvelous love, and the magnificent provision that you have given us in withholding not your only Son, but freely giving him up for us all. And so we praise you and thank you for our dear Lord Jesus for his dying love and his powerful living again. And most of all, perhaps, Lord, we we rejoice now that he is coming again. And we eagerly await his return. We remember that he is coming and that that should cover and, and color every moment of every day. Help us now, Lord, to live accordingly in the light of how you have given to us freely nothing less than your only begotten Son. Hear our prayer, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all the heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.